Let's turn our Bibles, please, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25. I'm reading verses 25 and 26. The scripture tells us, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. Cold waters and corrupt springs. Verses 25 and 26 deal both with the subject of water to illustrate simple truths. Verse 25 uses the figure of fresh water, and verse 26 uses the figure of a tainted fountain. And these proverbs represent the contrast between good news and bad news. If you remember two weeks ago, we started on this looking at verse 25. And today we're going to get to verse 26. But just by way of reminder, the good news, bad news scenario, there are all kinds of things that we deal with in life. There are a multitude of examples, not only in scripture, but in our everyday lives that are identified as good news or bad news. And whether or not it's labeled as such depends upon the person and their view, their outlook on life. You know, we as Christians, our worldview is that of a biblical worldview. So we look at the circumstances around us. We look at life in general through the light of Scripture. Others, in fact, may go ahead and use some other type of method or mode for interpreting life's challenges and struggles. But for us as Christians... We ought to be certain that as we look at life, we find God has an answer in his word for those challenges we face. And when you consider good news, the Bible, of course, gives us the ultimate definition of good news. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the scripture says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news of God. It is the good news of heaven that is, has been made available to everyone who would receive God's free offer of salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Isn't the hope that we have through the grace of God wonderful? To know that he is our blessed hope. We've repented of our sin and received Jesus Christ as Savior. That's good news, and it is good news for all who would receive it. Verse 25 emphasizes, of course, the impact of receiving good news from a friend or a relative, uh, news from a faraway land. It was like a refreshing drink of water to a tired person. And we spent uh, last, uh, that, that last service looking at this message, of course, and in light of the greatest message ever given, the message that Jesus saves. And we saw how it's pleasant because it satisfies. It's plentiful because it is sufficient. And it is purposeful because it is so specific. Well, the first of these two verses is positive. The second is negative. The first is about cold water, the second about a corrupt spring. The first emphasizes good news, and the second emphasizes bad news. The first is encouraging, the second is disappointing. And we see in verse 25, the metaphor is satisfaction. 
But in verse 26, the second metaphor we see is that which spoils. As we get started looking at verse 26, we see the scripture tells us a righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. We notice here God is using an illustration to draw a comparison about a righteous person falling before the wicked and it is likened unto a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. The word corrupt here means to pollute, to destroy, to spoil, or to utterly waste. It's found about 150 times in scripture and is first found in Genesis chapter 6 where it is used in reference to the corruption that, that prompted God to bring the flood upon the earth. Genesis 6.11 says the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. God looked at the world. Now understand we're not talking about the landscape. We're not talking about the mountains and the valley and the seas. We're talking about mankind. As God looked at mankind, he saw his thoughts were only wicked continually. And as a result, God brought judgment upon the world. Has nothing to do with the message today, but just a reminder, we believe that flood was a universal flood. It wasn't a local flood like some people would claim. We believe the entire planet was covered with water, which brings in a whole series of interesting topics, thoughts, and discussions about uh, the world and how it's developed. But that is our conviction. The world was covered with water in that great universal flood. So what we see here by God using this word corrupt indicates there are consequences associated with what he's trying to get across to us today. Our previous message, verse 25, dealt with good news and the wonder, the blessing that comes as a result of receiving that good news. Now we see the problem of what happens when someone ends up doing that which they should not do. So here we notice our character a righteous man. This addresses who is being addressed in this verse. It's talking about who we are. The word righteous, it's found over 200 times in scripture and refers both to the character of God and his saints. Genesis chapter 7 verse 1, the Lord said unto Noah, come thou in thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Psalm 1 6, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. This is talking about God's people, not the population in general. How does a person become a righteous person? How does one gain the favor of God, if you will, to have him look upon them with favor? Well, we know Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So what, what do we see here? Man is born into this world in a hopeless state. And as a result, Jesus Christ, we know this, Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for man's sin. And as a result, the redemptive message 
came forth from Calvary, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made it possible for everyone to be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how does one become a righteous individual? Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 tells us in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Yes, we, get, uh, we become righteous in the eyes of God as a result of repenting of our sin and receiving Christ as our Savior. Again, 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Yes, it is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that washes us and makes us pure and clean in his sight. So we see the righteous are those who are the saints of God. And by the way, they're referred to a number of ways in Scripture. We see they're referred to as those who are born again, redeemed, saved, blood-bought, washed in the blood, a child of God, a child of the King, a child of light, a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're referred to as saints and the just, to name a few. So we see there are many ways in which God identifies his children, but it's all speaking about the same thing. If I'm saved, I'm washed in the blood. I'm redeemed. I'm born again. If I'm washed in the blood, I'm redeemed. I'm born again. I'm saved. If I am saved, I'm washed in the blood. I'm redeemed. And so on. You understand these are interchangeable terms, all referring to those who are a part of the family of God. So that's the first thought, identifying our character. The second issue we see here, the second problem, deals with what we are doing. It's our conduct. A righteous man falling down. The phrase falling down, it's a verb indicating to be removed, to be carried, or to fall. It speaks of a wavering Wobbling action or condition in a variety of situations. It's used in a number of ways in the Bible. We see in Isaiah 54 verse 10, it refers to the shaking of mountains, an earthquake. In Isaiah 24, 19, it deals with the earth trembling under the mighty hand of God, the judgment of God. And then in Psalm 46 verse 6, it describes the instability of kings and kingdoms. And its opposite, by the way, is used to refer to the endurance of Mount Zion. Psalm 125, verse 1, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abideth forever. This word has a couple of additional uses which are applicable to us today, and I believe which apply here in this verse of Scripture. You see, it speaks of a foot slipping or sliding at a time of calamity and indicates failure on the part of God's people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. And then Psalm 94, verse 18, it involves being on unsteady ground and not maintaining a firm footing. Where the psalmist said, when I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. You know, this is also true 
in the spiritual realm, which I believe Solomon is getting at here. We must be certain we're standing firmly on the precepts of the word of God to ensure safety in this life. Now, physical harm can come to anybody pretty much at any time. But we're talking about the spiritual harm, the spiritual danger that is waiting out there to trip up, to cause believers to fall, to stumble, or to fail. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 7, when he said, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You're familiar with that story the Lord used. He used the illustration of a house built on a solid foundation and a weak foundation to demonstrate the stability of one whose faith is founded on the word of God and the instability of ones whose faith is founded upon something else. So here he uses an earthly illustration to bring us a heavenly truth, to help us to understand the value, the importance, the need to guard our lives. Psalm 37 verse 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Yes, a person who is sound, safe, and secure will not be moved in this life because they're grounded on the word. Proverbs 12.3, a man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous shall not be moved. In Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. How about you today? Do you find yourself established on the word of God? Do you see yourself traveling through the, the, the days of this life, living for the Lord, trusting in him, or... Are you constantly subject to falling, to slipping, to being removed from uh, the place of God's blessing? Many people today, many Christians today, I should say. Remember, we're talking about the righteous man. That's identified in the first three words there of this verse. It is the righteous man. Solomon is talking about many believers today are on shaky ground. Solomon is talking about the demise of of the righteous. He points out how troubling it is for God's children to fall, to fail, to falter in this life. 2 Samuel 12, 14, the scripture says, how be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You see, when we fall, when we fail, when we sin against the Lord, it harms our testimony for Christ. And by the way, it's a choice. You can't make me sin. I can't make you sin. I might aggravate you. I might say something that you don't like. I might say something that just turns you the wrong way. But your reaction, your response is what determines whether or not you're going to sin upon hearing what I or someone else says. You see, I'm responsible for my actions. My thoughts, words, and deeds are in my power to control, as are yours. We can't point the finger at somebody else and blame them and say, it's your fault. You made me sin. You caused me to stumble. No, the righteous man falleth down. It's the idea that that individual falls of his or her own accord. 
Remember Proverbs chapter 1 verse 10 says, If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. The choice is ours. You know, Romans chapter 6 verse 12 makes that clear. Paul wrote, Let not sin therefore rule in your mortal body, that you should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, it's a choice that every one of us make. When we start out in the day, we choose whether or not we're going to live for God or live for self. We choose whether or not we're going to be filled with the Spirit of God or we're going to go through life in our own power, our own strength, our own understanding. Too many Christians today are heading out on this trek, this journey through life, and they're not walking with the Lord. They're not grounded on the Word. They're not trusting in Him. And as a result, their disobedience leads them to do that which is displeasing to the Lord. Jesus warned His disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How frequently we find ourselves failing in that regard. Warren Wiersbe stated that the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. You see, our instability causes us to waver or even fall. James warns that though of those who are tossed about with every wind of doctrine blown about from one thought, one teaching, one view, one, one attitude to another. We need to be careful to guard against that. Oh, how we ought to be steady, stable, and dependable. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's God's desire for his children, that we be found faithful. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. However, we so frequently choose to that which do to do that which is displeasing to the Lord. It's that desire to satisfy our own wants and wishes. Oh, how sometimes that does get us into trouble, does it not? We need to be stable, steady in our walk with the Lord. All of us are old enough to remember a toy that was introduced by Hasbro back in July 1971. That toy, they were called Weeble People. Remember those? The, the catchphrase that was developed by the marketing company to introduce those toys was Weeble's Wobble but they don't fall down. Why? It's because they had a, a, a curved or a convex bottom, a rounded bottom, and then they were weighted inside. So it didn't matter whatever position you put them in, they always stood back up straight. You know, the faithful Christian is like that. No matter what circumstances, what situation they find themselves in, they might get battered around, they might struggle, they might stumble here and there, but they always stand come back up to an upright position, faithfully living for God and choosing to continue to go forward rather than giving up, quitting, and falling into uh, the snare of the devil. Dio Modi said, I have never met a man who has given me as much trouble as myself. Shelton Smith said, no one ever falls into sin. He walks into it one step at a time. Yes, we're talking about the righteous man falling down. God help us 
that we would be strong in our walk with the Lord and our faith, and we'd find ourselves living for him and being pleasing to him. Unknown author of this poem wrote, All the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never sink a ship unless it got inside. All the evil in the world, the wickedness and sin, can never sink your soul's fair craft unless you let it in. Again, it's a choice. Follow God, follow the world. Seek to please him, seek to please self. A righteous man falling down. Again, the idea there that falling down, it's by our own doing. But notice the third thing here. The character identified here, and dealing with who we are, the righteous. The conduct, what we're doing, falling down. And circumstances we see here where we are. A righteous man falling down before the wicked. This is what makes this illustration so important and so impactful. It's important for us to remember we live in the midst of darkness. Philippians 2.15 tells us that we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You see the word wicked here refers to the ungodly of the world. These are those who stand condemned before God. These are those who are not saved. It's important for us to understand we live in this world and come into contact with lost people all the time. Those of you who have work, you go to your, your place of employment. You're dealing with lost people all the time. You go to the store. You go out. You go anywhere. You're going to come into contact with the wicked. Now, by the way, that phrase there, that word, the wicked, it's referring to those, again, who are not saved. It's talking about people in general who know not God. You see, John chapter 3, verse 17. We're so familiar with verse 16, but so many of us, we forget to read past that. Verse 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, that light is the Lord Jesus Christ, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, the dividing line for God in the human population of this world, as far as the righteous and the wicked are concerned, is what have you done with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him? If so, you are numbered among the righteous, the saved, the redeemed, the blood-bought, the blood-bought, the born-again. If you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are numbered among the wicked, the unregenerate, the lost, the children of the devil. It's so sad that people don't understand that. John 3.36 warns us, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Psalm 9 verse 17 tells us, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 10 verse 4, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. That's why it's so important 
for the righteous to be steadfast and not fall because there, because there are others watching us in this life. Your neighbors see when you go off to church on Sunday morning. They see when you come back. And if you've ever had a very loud and boisterous argument with your spouse or another member of your family, they probably heard that too. You see, lost folks, they need to see the fruit of genuine Christianity. When they look at someone who professes to be a believer, they need to see someone who truly loves the Lord and walks with him. Our testimony for Christ will be most noticeable when we are living like the Lord. The Bible tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the world today, they need to see something different. They don't need to see a professing Christian who lives like the devil and says, well, I'm on my way to heaven. No, they need to see somebody who says, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I do struggle and fail at times, but thank God for his forgiveness. I'm doing my best to live for the Lord. Why? Paul asked what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The scripture declares, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. 1 Peter 1.15, but we also see that's a quote from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. From the beginning of God's dealing with man all the way through the end of time, God expects his people to be holy. There are no passes for anyone in the matter of holy living because you grew up in church, because your parents helped build the building, because you've been around since the days of Moses. No, sir. We are expected of the Lord to live for God and to be pleasing him to lead holy lives. It doesn't matter if the world tells us today, well, that holiness preaching, that's old fashioned. That's archaic. It's outdated. It's no longer relevant. I dare say it is relevant because God does not change. His word is forever settled in heaven and God expects us as his people to be steadfast and to be continuous in our walk with him. He hasn't changed his message of holiness. No, the thrice holy God of heaven is the same God today as he was in the days of Isaiah when Isaiah looked up and saw him high and lifted up. Love the same God. We need to be holy. We're the light of the world. We ought to be shining. Do some of you remember what it was like when you were a kid and you got your first flashlight? You couldn't wait for nightfall to come so you could go outside and shine it around the yard just to see how bright it was. That was just something exciting about it. There's something exciting about a Christian who enjoys shining his or her light for Jesus. It's a thrill. George Truitt said, not to do what we ought to do is as bad as doing what we ought not to do. Well, true it is. Paul in Romans 7 said, the good that I would not, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. 
you know, he admits he struggled with making bad choices at times. He, he struggled with the power of the flesh. Each of us have that same struggle. But God wants us to understand as his righteous people. He wants us to be faithful. He doesn't want us to fall down. And he doesn't want us to do so before the wicked. Beloved, we are the hope of lost mankind. I'm not, t- I'm not saying that to replace the Lord. Of course, he is the hope for all, all people everywhere. But our testimony is going to make a difference in the lives of others. How many people point down at the church house and say, I'll never go there because of all the hypocrites? Something happened. Say they saw somebody do something. They heard somebody say something. They were aware of what something that took place that caused them to determine Somebody in that church family was a hypocrite. God forbid we'd allow ourselves to get in that situation where people would point at us and say, there's no way I want anything to do with Christianity because of you. God help us to not fall down before the wicked. Someone has said Christians occasionally overlook the no trespassing signs that the Lord has erected on the border of the devil's territory. Let us not go where we should not go because those who need the Lord most are watching us. In conclusion, it's both lamentable and grievous for the righteous to fall down before the wicked. I believe we're admonished here to guard our testimony. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, Take heed to thyself and to thy doctrine. How you live, what you believe. What we believe ought to match how we live. That's why it's so important. When we fail, thank God, his word said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The question is, are we truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness as that heart that panteth after the waters does our heart have an equal desire for the Lord a pastor named Erwin Lutzer said many of us are not thirsty for God because we have quenched our thirst at some other fountain cold waters and corrupt fountains That says a lot as far as where we draw our nourishment and our satisfaction from. This poem by Raymond Hogue said, Turn back to where you left him, and you will find him there. He is waiting by the bedside where you used to kneel in prayer. He is standing in the chapel by that long abandoned pew. He stands by your forsaken swath where laborers are few. You are older, sorer, broken. You're tired of self, tis true, but return to where you left him. He is waiting there for you. We can't afford to blame our circumstances or others for our failure to walk with God. Bob Jones Sr. said the devil didn't tempt Adam and Eve to steal, to lie, to kill, or to commit adultery. He tempted them to live independently of God. Oh, the Lord help us to trust in him. Reminded of the song we often sing, 
Through my disappointments, strife, and discontentment, I cast my every care upon the Lord. No matter what obsession, pain, or deep depression, I'm standing on the solid rock. Yes, I'm standing on the rock of ages, safe from all the storms that rages. Rich, but not from Satan's wages, I'm standing on the solid rock. I ask you this morning, are you standing up or falling down as the righteous of God? Are you living a life of consistency, faithfulness, and stability before the lost? If not, it's like taking a swig of poisoned, corrupt water because it just isn't beneficial for anybody.